Okay, welcome to You Talking with Greg. Uh, I'm super excited today. Uh, I have my good friend Jim Rutt uh, here, who I'm sure many people in this space know. Uh, the Jim Rutt Show It's the podcast I compete with and get shamed by. <laughs> Uh, enjoyed my time on Jim Rutt's show. Um, you know, obviously Game B is a huge thing. The Santa Fe Institute, there's all sorts. So I'm going to ask Jim a little bit about his history. We'll get into that whole story. Um, but I really, I just want to say that the other thing that's really cool about Jim is that he lives near me. It's amazing. We, just, we discovered we live about 10 miles apart. 10 miles apart and, and all sorts of Game B shit was going down and I was 10 miles away. Um, but uh, so you've been a really delight to learn uh, about you, your vision, Jim. So it's a real wonderful opportunity to have you on the program. Thank you so much for all you've done. Well, thanks for the invitation. Yeah, we've had some uh, nice chats, both uh, online and once we discovered we live 10 miles apart in person. Actually, in person. Stuff. I've got a 3D vision of Jim. It's amazing. <laughs> He's even scarier in real life than he is online. <laughs> yeah, those has been delightful lunches. Um, so actually, as I, as I indicated, you know, I am a clinician. I do like to get people's story. Uh, so I like to hear the story. Uh, so maybe we could start there. You're, you've lived a very, very rich, interesting life. It's really fascinating uh, to me, given your background and everything else, where uh, the things you have your hands in and, and your vision and the things you've been involved in. So maybe we could start there and uh, share a little bit with listeners about your background. Sure. I just, you know, I have to admit, I have had an interesting uh, tale and, uh, you know, I'll, I'll try to keep it relatively short. If I go on too long, kind of go like this. Yeah, well, off. you know, neither you or not I are shy, Jim, about, you know, jumping in. So yeah, I'll exactly. do that as needed. <laughs> yeah, so anyway, I was a, you know, classic uh, uh, post-World War II baby boomer, you know, born in the you know, early 50s in a classic uh, world post-World War II subdivision of Washington, yep. D.C., uh, kind of a, on the working class uh, side of things. My dad was a Washington, D.C. cop. And okay. uh -huh. uh, most right. of my neighbors were electricians and plumbers and meat cutters and uh, the occasional school teacher and things of that ilk. Yep. Uh, it was a great time to have grown up. Uh, mm. D.C. was quite prosperous. And then, you know, our working class community, uh, there was nobody who was rich or even affluent, but there was also nobody ever missed a meal. So it was kind right. of a Nice. In some, some mm -hmm. sense, the perfect place to have grown mm, up. Class, kind and, of middle class. And, yeah, yeah, yeah kind of, I would say a little bit below middle class. A little class, more, lower middle. Mm -hmm. Lower middle class to upper working class. Right, and, right, right. Uh, and lots and lots of kids, right? Mm. So you just went outside and you just had a life and your parents turned you loose in the morning. <laughs> they didn't follow you wherever you were. You, you, what you if you were back, a mile away? <laughs> the idea of helicopter pairing parents was the you know no such thing in those days yep uh, in fact one of my very first memories was in, in bracketing it uh based on when these houses were built it, i had to have been no older than three and a half mm. uh was uh, going up with my next door neighbor who was a couple of years older than i was and a famously uh shall we say naughty kid and we mm -hmm. uh uh crawled across a, i guess it must have been a two by six across an open trench into a house under construction and wandered around uh, looking for interesting stuff. And I remember collecting a bag full of uh, those little metal circles that you knock out of the electrical box. Right. We wow. call them slugs. And so, yeah, here, here we are, three, no more than three and a half, uh, wandering around, uh, 
uh, unsupervised on a construction site. Yeah, parents just thought, oh, well, you know, <laughs> that's life. So, Kids did die from accidents a little more frequently back then, but uh, at the same time, there was, there was all sorts of glorious freedoms that we- Exactly. Uh, and I think overall, the trade-off was uh, worth was worthwhile. So yeah, I went, then, you know, went to, went, to, you know, went to school and did pretty well in high school, kind of enjoyed it and uh, went off to college uh, mm-hmm. to MIT, uh, which was fairly unusual for my hmm. uh, community. In fact, the, for, I was the first- uh, person, maybe the only person still to go to MIT from my high school. Oh. And uh, it was a bit of a culture shock. I had, you know, mm-hmm. met very few college educated people other than school right. teachers and clergy folks and doctors. So uh, that whole world was kind of an eye opener to me. And uh, what was your interest at that time when you went to MIT? Did you have a, a yeah, a physics. Very, physics. Ah, okay, you were interested. Yeah, I was a, you know, definitely a physics dude. But I, it's funny, I had an epiphany sophomore year that I, just didn't really want, as I said to myself, spend my adult life in a white coat in a damp basement. And because uh, I was, uh, it was clear that my, while I was definitely uh, good enough to be a physicist, uh, I was not quite of the mathematical ability to be a theoretical physicist. So it would have been an experimentalist, right? And very interesting questions. I was very interested in particle physics and, and those things, but just had this epiphany. And so yeah. I changed majors and ended up putting together one of those cross-disciplinary bullshit majors, right? <laughs> uh, which was, you know, big thing in the 70s. Right, your own major. Hey, it's still a big thing. Huh? If and, we only get more interdisciplinary work, the world's problems will solve. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, but anyway, I was sort of a disillusioned youth by the time okay. I graduated. And, yeah. uh, and when I graduated, I didn't, I didn't go on a single job interview. I just went back to my home town, which I enjoyed a lot and hung uh-huh, out and uh-huh. got a, a, you know, a bullshit job as a car salesman, believe it or not. Uh, oh, good, wow. Okay. I was a good enough car salesman to pay off all my student loans in 11 months. <laughs> Somehow I see that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. Would you buy a, a new car, not a used car, a new uh, car from this man? The answer was yes. Right? Yes. Well, you're and, very uh, engaging and charismatic, Jim. So yeah, that makes sense. It was a, and it was a redneck uh, car dealership in Laurel, Maryland. So mm. it was a fairly good uh, fit socially and personality wise. It was fun. And I took off and hitchhiked around the country. No uh, shit. <laughs> yeah, I logged 50,000 miles hitchhiking. In my youth, uh, and that wasn't all on that that trip. In fact, I actually did a, another long trip right after I graduated from college. I hitchhiked, hitchhiked out to California and up and down the coast and round and about. But then I went on a long, year-long trip, uh, you know, uh, living on a dollar a day for a fair amount of it. And uh, uh, got a job in uh, Silicon Valley, not Silicon Valley, in uh, Sun Valley. Sun Valley, very different Silicon Valley. Uh, working at a, grocery, at a convenience store, night shift manager, skiing every day on a Chamber of Commerce pass. And wow. right every day and but hung around and came back home. Okay. Uh, got a job as a college textbook peddler. How about that? Ah, My first real job. I remember those annoying fucks that would come around yeah, when you were a them. professor giving, giving out books and trying to get <laughs> you. Had quite a few of those books in my office. <laughs> exactly. Right. You know, hopefully you weren't one of those bad people that would sell the samples. But, uh, <laughs> Never. But, but, uh, yeah, it was uh, happening all the time. Anyway, but the cool thing about it was it was, as I said later, a PhD a mile wide and an inch deep. Uh, mm. At least my approach was mm-hmm. soft sell, uh, mostly just talk to the prospect about what they were interested in. So I, yeah. you know, get you know 20, 30 minutes to chat with all these really interesting people about, across every discipline. We had books, it was a medium-sized independent uh mm-hmm. textbook. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that would be really interesting. And it, it was actually amazingly interesting. And uh, you know, the the big thing that came out of that. Uh, life trajectory wise, about 1978, I started okay. seeing these strange things on com- 
some professors' desks, mostly in engineering and science and math, and that was personal computers, the very earliest ones. Yeah. And most of them were very, you know, weird names that you've never heard of, like MITS and Altair and uh-huh, North Star uh-huh. Horizon and what have uh-huh, you. And uh-huh. They were semi-kits that these characters would build. When I was in college, <laughs> I did take a course in computer programming. I did some programming to make money, uh, writing atmospheric models for the geology department and Fortran and stuff. But I was not a lover of computers because in those days it was the big glass house with the big Mm, IBM mainframes and punch cards and all that stuff. Yeah, it didn't really appeal to me that way. Mm. But the idea of having your own computer, holy shit. So in 1980, I plunked down about 90% of my net worth, uh, $4,500, and bought a top-of-the-line Apple II with a a graphics capable dot matrix printer, dual floppies. Holy moly! Of course, I actually had my family had one of those, and I played the Olympics on there. I was actually really good at the Olympics on that model because that would have been my fifth grade year, nineteen eighty. I would have been into that's uh, that's actually when it. Yeah, that that's was right. anyway. There, so yeah, there's our cool. parallel lives. Yeah, exactly, and uh, <laughs> ten at the, the time. Yeah, and uh, and I decided I was going to get into the technology industry, and so I mm. checked around and. I uh, got some job offers as uh, VP of marketing for educational software companies. You know, it's a good fit, know, know the markets and such, and mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, know, you know, knew enough about technology, be dangerous, et cetera. Uh, but I stumbled across in my research a company called The Source. In fact, I, I actually oh. came up on their magazine in a computer store. In the, old, the old days, computer stores is where us PC nerds hung out to see what was happening. Okay. They had a they had a magazine, and the source was the very first online consumer service. Literally, most of what we have on the web today, we had by 1981. You know, chat, email, news services. Really? uh, You know, uh, you know, buying and selling stuff, bulletin boards, and even by 80 late 81, uh, one of the precursors of social media. So anyway, uh, I wrote a crazy letter to the. VP of sales and said, okay. I, got a pl- I got a plan to build a $4 billion business for you in the educational field. And he, no, I, I went back and looked at that letter uh, later. I got Jesus, what an audacious fuck I was. But, uh, uh, but he said, well, it sounds interesting. The next time, <laughs> four billion bucks. <laughs> you know, and I didn't realize at the time how tiny this was. It was yeah. probably ten million a year in revenue of mm. that, right? Uh, and they said, if you ever get to DC, drop in. I'd love to chat with you. And well, it turns mm. out my parents lived in DC, even though I was living in Kentucky at the time. I was mm-hmm. heading up there for Thanksgiving, so I stopped in, chatted with them, and we really hit it off. And they offered cool. me a job. And, okay. And meantime, I had these other three job offers, and and a offer from you know the parent company of the publishing company I worked for to start a software division. But I had this, you know, I walked around as I do when I make a decision, I walked around the neighborhood where I live for about an hour. And as mm-hmm. I always do, I say to myself, before I step foot on the front porch, I will make the decision. Mm. And, and I concluded that the, I loved the idea of the online world much more than I did software. Okay. And, and it was just, it was just something about it that, that attracted me. I can't even articulate any particularly uh-huh. good or, you know, logical reason. Just like this, yeah, I, I, I just smelled that this is, you know, intuitive sense, yeah. truly uh-huh. intuitive sense. Uh-huh. And so I walked through the door and it was very clear in my mind. I called the other four companies up and said no and said yes to the source, moved to Chicago uh, uh-huh. and uh, 
uh, as a was a regional sales manager in Chicago. That was what mm-hmm. they happened to have mm-hmm. open. Being a pragmatic kind of guy, I was I'll just take any job. I'm going to fuck right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, soon I was back at headquarters as the head of market research, and then uh, ran software development for a while, and ran product. Uh, was the co-head of product marketing, mm-hmm. and uh, okay. was involved in the very earliest uh, building of the online world, which was really interesting. I heard you mention that. That's really fascinating. That's yeah, really, I mean, it really was a, uh, you know, one of the key uh, forks in my life. It could have easily gone in a different direction. Sure. And uh, unfortunately, the, the source was bought by the Reader's Digest uh, uh, like a week after okay. I joined it, right? Uh, uh, and uh, people don't remember. Reader's Digest was a big deal. In yeah, we had there were total Reader's Digest all over our damn house. <laughs> yeah, it was a multi-billion-dollar company, one of the biggest, and most profitable publishing companies in the world. That subsequently went bankrupt. Amazing. Mm. There were a series of bad investments, mm. uh, and, and the source could have been could have been a contender, could have been the winner. I right? could have been the CompuServe of that era at least. Mm. But the Reader's Digest management uh, were they bad? So after five CEOs in 20 months, the last one who they actually sent down from Reader's Digest was totally intolerable. And so after I spent uh, an hour presenting my vision of the the source, I concluded, Mm -hmm. this dude is seriously clueless. I'm out of this place. (laughs) And so I uh, hooked up with a guy I had met actually in the online world. And he and I went and started a company in Boston Hmm. uh, Hmm. called Business Research Corporation. And our Charter was to take the low-cost, high-performance technologies, which we pioneered at the source, which are like an order of magnitude less expensive than the mainframe technologies that Uh people had typically been using, Uh and to apply them into Wall Street and corporate America to build online information products. And we built a series of online information products. Uh, that were some some were interesting, and a couple of them were revolutionary. And in uh, 1986, I. Uh, sold uh, we sold that uh, a, a bundle of four companies that were kind of interrelated to each other uh-huh. and uh, uh, to sold it to uh, Thompson Corporation these days Thompson Reuters uh-huh. and it was one of the foundational pieces to their Thompson Financial Services division uh, uh-huh. and I stayed around for about six months and then I ah, big company is not for me I'm out of here off I went did a uh, another couple of startups uh, one of which was successful one of which was kind of a, a draw, I would say. Okay, okay. Uh, uh-huh. And uh, then I kind of retired, quote unquote, uh, and uh, you know, started thinking big thoughts and then got sucked hmm. back into the business world after about six months okay. uh, uh-huh. with a two-day uh-huh. consulting assignment, uh, hmm. supposedly, to hmm. back, to, back <laughs> to Thompson. Uh, know, they had, they okay. had a business unit that was being run by a friend of mine who had actually been at my startup. And he said, oh, I got all kinds of technical problems, Jim. Could you come here and take a look? And so I said, oh, shit, what the hell? I'll, for a ridiculous amount of money, I'll come in and give you a two-day consulting stint. So he, said, he said yes. I said yes. I did it. Anyway, I ended up staying six and a half years and ended up as the uh, first CTO of uh, Thompson for the whole $8 billion company, 50,000 wow. employees. And in the meantime, I, uh, on the way, I managed several businesses for them, et cetera. So anyway, that was very interesting. And, you know, my role then became to drag this, at that time, mostly print publisher into the internet world. Huh. And we, okay. we did it. Mm-hmm. And uh, we went from number four in our category, to number one over about a 10-year period. And I think Sweet. we laid a very good foundation for that. And then, you know, my last gig in uh, business world was um, got recruited uh, late in the day, and to my surprise, I really like Thompson. It's a very good company. It's family, okay. family owned, very ethical. 
played the game hard, but uh, but honestly and fairly. Fair. Mm-hmm. And, um, uh, uh, but I got recruited away with a very interesting opportunity to run Network Solutions, who at the time ran the domain name system. Hmm. Uh, Net org. Uh, all of that. Yeah, okay. All yeah, that shit. And the underlying yeah. infrastructure for everything else, right? Jeez. All the country codes and all this stuff. And we had a nice abusive monopoly. It was a... Yeah, no, uh, that sounds fairly central. It was a very... <laughs> and I, you know, and it was... I will say, it, uh, much of the company was very fucked up. Mm. And famously so. The worst customer service imaginable, serious technical problems, you know, a bunch of other... Uh, you know, a bunch of other problems. And people ask me, well, why the hell would you go to that fucked up mess? And I said, well, you know, truthfully, I'd done one turnaround before mm. and uh, fixing br- busted stuff in some ways is easier than creating new stuff. And huh. think, okay. think about the central position this thing has. Yeah, no so, doubt about that, huh? And, and so uh, I, I went there and we fixed her up and sold it at the very top of the dot-com bubble. Uh, I mean, it was kind of ridiculous, I must mm-hmm. say. Mm-hmm. And then I said, all right, enough's enough. I'm mm. I'm done with business, uh, and I retired. And I and this has been the third time. Was I, this like ninety eight, ninety nine ish kind of deal? Two thousand. Two thousand. Well, that is, okay, right at the top. <laughs> I mean, yeah, we literally uh, we literally penciled the deal March tenth, two thousand. Go back and look at the curves. That is the, the bubble. Top. That is, that is <laughs> the literally the day top. of the fucking top. Literally the top <laughs> within within forty eight hours. <laughs> Holy uh, and and uh, so. Uh, <laughs> That was good. And so but anyway, I said, all right, I've retired twice before. The first time for two days, second time for two months. This time I'm going to find something that'll keep <laughs> my interest. Got to go for first. at least two years. Exactly. That's what I said, two years. So I inventoried my interests and I said, all right, of the things I've been interested in, this evolutionary computation and complexity yeah. is something I found very interesting. I've been reading John Holland's work, Melanie Mitchell, Stuart mm. Kaufman, et cetera. Yep. I went back and looked at my Amazon log, and that was kind of in the, you know, 96, 97, 98 time. I said, I want to become a researcher in this, goddammit. And so uh, the day I retired, because I did I did, I did have the golden handcuffs, or more like silver handcuffs. And so I had to stay almost a year at uh, Verisign, who had acquired us. And hmm. But come uh, 2000, April 2001, I stepped down and walked down the uh, uh, April 2nd, walked down the uh, hall to my lab, which I had built, and started writing evolutionary computing software to evolve neural nets. Uh, Damn. Evolutionary computing is a very cool field. And, yep. you know, it may have been from, you know, being responsible for 5,000 programmers at Thompson and technologists that wouldn't it be great if you could create software without programmers, right? <laughs> <laughs> They're talking uh, about getting rid of the middleman. <laughs> exactly. And so you know, the idea of evolutionary computation is you set up ecosystems uh, where uh, randomly generated programs compete with each other. And of course, of course, uh, initially a randomly generated program is total garbage, but of course. Uh, it, uh, using some crossover and mutation. And, you know, many <laughs> Variation, things. selection, and retention. That's yeah. a way to grow shit. Exactly. <laughs> and amazingly, at least if the domain is correct and if you get the representation correct, you can actually grow software through Darwinian competition. And yeah, I nice. created uh, an ecosystem around the Othello game to evolve huh. game-playing agents uh, using uh, encoded neural nets, essentially. Huh. It, it was a hell of a lot of fun. Is that what ultimately and, led to the good Go champions? In yeah, eventually, and uh, and you know, and my approach is not was not at all very different from mm. uh, uh, from AlphaGo Zero, and that I used the zero intelligence starting point where I mm. told it nothing but the rules. Uh, I did not awesome. have opening books. I did not have uh, deep advanced searches or anything else. So it was uh, mm. at least conceptually on the same line uh, that eventually led to AlphaGo Zero. 
and uh, it was a lot of fun. And uh, so a guy I knew who was a reporter at the Times thought this was just very interesting. And he wrote a uh, article in the Times. Uh, it, was, I don't know, it was called something like "Internet CEO Does What" or something like that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and it was kind of a cool article. It was kind of fun. And uh, came to the attention of the people of Santa Fe Institute. Right. And they called me. I figured we were out of this cusp. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And uh, they called me up and we had a good hour chat and they said, how would you like to come out and visit? You you sound like our kind of guy. And I said, well, sure, why not? So I went out and visited. We really hit it off. And for those people who don't know it, the Santa Fe Institute is an exceedingly interesting place. It's a, a research institute. Uh, that's research only, does no contract work. It is not a think tank. Uh, and it's on par with you know the highest quality research places you've ever heard of, right? It's not very big. The total number of full-time resident faculty is about eight or nine. Yep. Throw, in, throw in another 15 or so postdocs, and that's basically it. But it also has a worldwide network of external faculty, over 100. And uh, it's, been, uh, it's been amazingly influential. In a typical year, you know, we'll publish, you know, 25 or 30 uh, articles in uh, uh, Nature, Science, PNAS, other absolute top drawer uh, uh, journals on par with like, say, University of Wisconsin or something. Yep. Uh, only a little less than, say, uh, University of Michigan or something. So it's like really amazingly high impact. Research. Totally. In and, fact, I, I, this was in 2000 and uh, middle of 2001. I'm, I developed my TOK manifesto. And I mailed that to Santa Fe into you know, randomly, just you know, I had nothing about marketing. I'm a complete, I basically have a learning disability when it comes to marketing. But I was like, oh, hey, those guys are doing super cool stuff. Here, I'll just randomly send them this shit. Of course, I never heard anything back. But anyway, it's a connection I have to Santa Fe. <laughs> All right. That's, it's, you, know, you should come out one day. We'll, uh, we'll you know, have you give it Right. Talk. Things have evolved. <laughs> Things have evolved, right? And I will say, over the transom crazy ass shit comes into SFI all the time. Yeah, I would imagine. And uh, and truthfully, we have no method to process it. So mm. it probably just went right into the circular file. <laughs> uh, and so anyway, uh, I went back out there again after a couple months and they uh, said, hey, how should it come out and be a researcher? And I go, shit, it's kind of like, you know, it's, uh, frankly, it's like inviting a barefoot friar from Guatemala to go to the Vatican. But, uh, you know, if you ask for various family reasons, it makes sense, made sense for us to, you know, to do it. So my wife and daughter and I moved out to Santa Fe in 2002 and I became a researcher at the Santa Fe Institute. Wow. It was mm-hmm. uh, and literally that's what I did. Right. Yeah. I, was fairly, I was fairly junior researcher and uh, evolutionary you know, computational stuff. Did you have a specific area? I mean, that's yeah, a did, very interdisciplinary domain. But. Yeah, I did lots of stuff. I did mm-hmm. uh, evolutionary uh, AI. I did mm-hmm. a fair amount of work on uh, price formation in financial markets I did some consulting and advising on projects around uh, climate change and alternative energy. Mm. Uh, and it's a sort of a resource for people who wanted real world perspectives on things because uh-huh. uh-huh. uh, these people are really, really smart, but they live in a very, very ivory tower. And yep. so I, I was a useful uh, you know, input where people wanted grounding in reality. He gave you know a little advice on some of the work on scaling laws in cities and companies. Mm. And, uh-huh. you know, I didn't do it. I was not a major contributor there, but I was a sounding board for uh, people that wanted to say, "All right, how does this, how do these ideas from biology? Uh, how does this resonate with you if we try to apply them to companies and cities?" And I go, right, yes, right, right. Yes, no, no. So gotcha. Uh, you know, played as you cool. know. So anyway, it was very, very interesting. Then. Uh, you know, in retrospect, I don't know if I should have, but I did. Uh, I allowed them to talk me into getting involved more on the governance side than on mm. the science side. 
and uh, ended up on the board of trustees and then vice chairman, then chairman and, uh, you know, mm-hmm. help shepherd the place forward. And uh, that's fulfilling in its own way Makes as sense. well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I was there 10 years. And then for family reasons, again, we I, we decided to move back to Virginia. Right. In 2012, right. I stepped down as chairman, moved back to Virginia. And, mm-hmm. uh, and that's where you got uh, the place, you know, outside Stanton, right? Yeah, well, actually, we have a place in Stanton. And then we, right. have, a, mm-hmm. and we have a farm about an hour to the west, right. deep right. in the mountains. Deep in Appalachia, back in the uh, one of the most remote places in the eastern United States. Uh, you know, our nearest neighbor is a mile away. The whole population of the county is uh, 2,200 people or so. So, uh, a, a very good place to have, ri- have ridden out the COVID uh, pandemic. <laughs> yes, we are fairly well isolated out there. Yeah. So anyway, uh, you know that's the you know that's sort of the you know the back you know backbone of it. And then when I got back, started. Uh, thinking about, okay, how can I apply this complexity thinking to real world problems? And I got connected up with some other interesting folks and we created uh, uh, this game B thing. Right? right. Yeah. That's definitely what I hope we transition to in terms of that. And it, and it was that, was it the grounding at the Santa Fe Institute that really seeded your perspective and connections in this regard? Or was it, I wasn't yeah, sure about that transition. Yeah, certainly I would say the lens of complexity was one of the most important uh, uh, seeds for me. And also uh, at the Santa Fe Institute, I met my most important collaborator in this project, Jordan Hall. Uh, uh, <laughs> I just who, talked to and I'm talking to tomorrow. So yeah, yeah, so yeah, now yeah. I'm networked with Mr. Hall. <laughs> yeah, Jordan and I have been working together uh, closely, mostly, but independently as well mm-hmm. on this stuff since 2008, actually, where when we met at the Santa Fe Institute where he was a new young trustee and he and I had this most amazing four or five hour conversation after a, a board meeting. And we, mm. uh, we just said, damn, you know, we think about the world peculiarly, but similarly. And uh, we remained in contact. And then in 2012, uh, you know, I sent him a 60 page paper I wrote on, mm. uh, you know, various things. And he said, wow, mm-hmm. this is interesting. Let me rope in some people I know. And so okay. mm-hmm. he brought in Brett Weinstein and some mm-hmm. other folks. And I brought in some people I, I knew. And for long, we had a dozen people working on uh, ideas that eventually in 2013 uh, morphed into uh, Game B. Right. And, and sort of you the- You guys team, had a series of conferences, right? Yeah, Basically we had- Right uh, here, right down yeah, the road from me. Yep. Yeah, mm-hmm. five, uh, the famous five Stanton meetings. Mm-hmm. And, the group kept getting bigger and bigger. I think Stanton Five actually had 35 people in attendance, uh, and they were by that time there were about 65 people in the uh, in the overall effort. Yep. And uh, you know, sort of, and the basic thesis was uh, Game A, the alternative, the current status quo, yep. while having been very successful in many ways over the last 300 years and doing miraculous things, uh, also has some fundamental deep problems. Uh, that will lead us to crash as a society if we don't address deep fundamentals. We're not talking about superficial changes here. Uh, And uh, I would say everything that we talked about since then has only gotten more obvious and more clear. Seems like things are heating up, Jim. (laughs) Yeah, when we were talking about quite literally, right? Uh, And we were talking about this in 2013. Frankly, most people thought we were nuts, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Many less people think we're nuts today. And uh, I mean, that I really not thought you were nuts, but I wasn't on. I at 2013, I was not aware of global civilization collapse as a hey, you know, that's in the potential forecast. And now, obviously, that, as my family knows, it's sort of like, hey, you know, yeah, it's easy to become a crank on this. Shit. stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so I will say we were there, you know, we uh, 
we came up with uh, universal basic income long before the term was floated around. We call it the citizenship wage. You know, we'd identified uh, you know, problems with, the, with our monetary system and finance. We had identified problems with our governance structure, particularly the capture of politics by money. You know, we, uh, you know, we had a whole lot of yep. diagnostics and we, and we were beginning to work on, all right, what is a uh, real outside the box thinking? And, we're, and that work has been continuing. And we, yep. uh, you know, we, we had a little bit of a fracture in 2014, but then we came back together in 2017, 2018. And hmm. the Game B mm-hmm. movement has been uh, uh, gaining momentum since. And uh, you know, I will say it's kind of frustrating and there is not a doctrine available anywhere. There's Dozens of thinkers, uh, people like Daniel Schmachtenberg and Forrest Landry, Jordan Hall, yep. of course, Brett Weinstein, uh, you know, some people I would call at least Game B adjacent who've been in and out of the movement, people like Nora Bateson and mm-hmm. uh, uh, mm-hmm. Benita Roy and, uh, and many others. And so it's been, a, you know, been really fun to explore with other smart people, uh, you know, this deep thinking. And Sort of where we're at now, and I think uh, I think there's a fair amount of agreement on this vision, is that uh, human society is has entered into what we call the meta crisis. Yeah, uh, which is it's not just one thing. You know, global warming. Yeah, global warming not a good thing. Uh, very bad, in fact. And if if none of these other problems get us, uh, global warming may well. But uh-huh. there are other ones. You know, the uh, the uh, species extinction uh, events that are going on, you know, the rise of authoritarianism, the rise of economic inequality, uh, whatever it is that's breaking down our ability for collective sense-making. I mean, the crazy-ass shit, uh, I mean, that runs around and and that has, you know, 42% popularity, right? This anti-vax stuff, what the fuck, right? It's it's bad, Jim. (laughs) I mean, it's like nothing I can recall. I know my wife and I talked about this for a bit. We recall when we were young kids, like eight or nine, the um, Sabin oral polio vaccine came out. Uh, the polio was a really bad epidemic oh, and man. tens of thousands of kids were crippled and fair numbers died every year from this really horrible disease. And then this very effective oral vaccine came along and the government decided we're just going to give it to everybody for free. Mm-hmm. And uh, we lined up at the local junior high school, everybody. And mm-hmm. you got the, the stuff on a sugar pill and you mm-hmm. took it. And that was that. Nobody complained about it. No, everyone knew it was your moral obligation to participate. Right. It was like there was faith in the institutions back then. Exactly. <laughs> and uh, and now, I mean, God damn, it's just crazy ass shit. It's like there is no way to uh, have good collective sense making anymore yeah. about really important things. I mean, in some sense, we were lucky with COVID. It's bad, but it could have been a lot worse. Imagine if it had the same transmissibility factor, but had a death rate of 25%, right? Obviously, yeah, no. And, and things like MERS, which is a fairly close uh, relative, had a death rate of 50%. So imagining a uh, COVID uh, thing of uh, that level of uh, transmissibility with a 25% death rate, could easily happen and probably will at some time in the future. And if we have such broken sense-making as was shown across the whole West, basically, uh, it'd be a fucking shit show. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And, uh, that, and that's not the only you know, example of broken no, sense-making. We are, no, we totally have broken sense-making. Uh, and we absolutely need to somehow figure out a way to upgrade our schematics so we can actually coordinate ourselves for collective intelligence decision-making you know, and that's a you know the game B world, and and indeed you're working on it. Is it 
do I have it right that maybe uh, there's some opportunities for some, you know, future evolution in a game B and you're working on a game B manuscript. Is that correct? Or something along those lines? Yeah, I am. I have uh, since uh, April 1st, I've been working on what I call the game B book project. Okay. Uh, mm-hmm. I started uh, with a very, very deep outline. And then July 1st, uh, I started uh, basically cut back on my podcasting from like mm-hmm. 10 a month to two episodes a month. Okay. Uh, and I'm sp- Love the Jim Rutt podcast, by the way. Let's make a plug for it nonetheless. Yeah, the Jim Rutt show. And uh, oh, speaking of plugs, I also put me to- on the mat. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. It was great. It was, it was wonderful. I think we had you on twice, didn't we? I think you we did. You. After yeah. our conversation, we came back and plugged the fifth joint point as a framing for this transition for what we're going through. Exactly. Right. And so uh, uh, since July 1st, I've been doing uh, in-depth interviews with many of the Game B thinkers, ones I mentioned, plus a bunch of other ones who are uh, doing really interesting work in various niches like yep. uh, education and parenting and mm. things of that ilk. Uh, and, uh, and I continue to populate the, the outline and add some content, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, this is really going to be interesting. It's going to be very important, though, I'm, and I'm framing this in the introduction, that while this will be the first comprehensive look at Game B, it must not be taken as catechism. In right. fact, I think I'll probably put in the introduction, you know, something rather rutty and like, if I hear anybody quoting this book as catechism, I'm going to kick their ass, right? <laughs> uh, and, uh, and and make the point that we are not utopians. We don't think we have all the answers. This is an evolutionary unfolding and exploration of a new social operating system for humanity, or at least for Western civilization. But we must do so by taking our starting theory, putting it into practice, learning, and then adjusting our theory and doing it in uh, in a continuous cycle. And that uh, always be very skeptical, anybody who tells you they have the answer in their book. And Amen book, to that. And this book will be very, very emphatic about the fact uh, that Game B, by its very nature, has got to be exploratory, adaptive, and heading towards what I call metastability. Mm. We don't believe, while we have to become more stable than we are, we don't mm-hmm. believe stability is, is reasonable either. You end up with, okay. you know, like mm-hmm. China in uh, 1471, <laughs> where they burned all the sailing ships and turned inward and ended up getting uh, uh, conquered by the uh, Manchus and then mm. later the Europeans. You, know, you can't mm-hmm. turn inward. You can't stop. You can't, and you can't go back. You mm-hmm. have to go forward. We have to go forward in a way that understands the carrying capacity of the earth. Yep. It goes forward understanding what does collective sense-making really mean? And right. how, how should it work in such a way that it's compatible with human nature? Because mm-hmm. humans are not super intelligences, right? Mm-hmm. In fact, I love to say that humans are to the first order the stupidest possible general intelligence. <laughs> uh, uh, we just climb into general intelligence barely. I mean, it makes sense. We're evolutionary, We're evolutionary <laughs> creatures. Modern nature seldom propagate with their gifts. And as you know, as a psychologist, there's whole kinds of, deep limitations in human cognition. Probably the most famous is our working memory size, five plus or minus, or seven plus or minus two. It's really more like five. Actually, they shrunk it. <laughs> We're five. down to five, pretty much. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And uh, and that has gigantic implications. That, for instance, the fact that we can't actually understand a book right? Uh, what we're doing is uh, looking at five words at a time and then five concepts. We grab a hold of the gist and then justify accordingly. <laughs> exactly, right? And uh, we're not that smart. Uh, and we're, we get a little smarter when we have external things like reading and writing and computers and adding machines and abacuses and things like that. But we're still just barely generally intelligent. We've been able to do amazing things, particularly as we develop these externalizations of our cognition. Uh, but uh, to think that 
we, a single human, is able to, let's say, make sense of the modern network world with all these messages bombarding us, you know, 40, 50,000 uh, messages a month, and, uh -huh. uh, you know, be able to vet them and validate them and make sense and come uh -huh. to some solid conclusions, which is wrong. We just don't have the right architectures in place around us, and nor do we have the cooperative and collaborative efforts that we should, we should all each be embedded in a cell of collective sense-making. Right. Uh, where together we can sort this stuff out. But on our on our own, the way the world has been driving towards hyper-individualism, it's a shit show. It's why totally. people believe ridiculous bullshit, right? <laughs> uh, and so anyway, um, you know, I'm... So what's your sense about kind of where the movement is? What is your... Do you have an optimistic, a pessimistic, you know, both forecasts for kind of how we're evolving? What's most exciting about what you're yeah. seeing on the edge of this? Yeah, very, uh, very optimistic. The uh, Game B cloud of people is continually growing. We have 5,000 people, members of our online service mm -hmm. services. If you want to find the others, as we say, two places you can do it. Uh, the one I'd recommend is our private uh, network, game-b.org. Uh, now it's currently not, you have to be, you have to apply for membership in a little three, three question form. Uh, so just say Jim Rott told me, right. Or, Would they let me in Jim? Can I get into that? Yeah. Or just don't say <laughs> that asshole Jim Rott, right. Right. Well, that, that should be the code handshake. That's that it. If you put that in there, where did you hear about it? The screeners will know that you have the real deal and we'll let you in. You heard it here folks. Yeah. <laughs> that asshole Jim Rutt game dash B dot O R G. Uh, there's also a Facebook group, uh, Game B group on Facebook. Uh, it's actually uh, still fairly active, but I would say the real thinking and the most, uh, the best interactions are on the on our private group. And uh, uh, so it's, it continues to grow. The ears to hear are growing every day. COVID mm. certainly helped. More uh, COVID yep. was a wake up call to people. There's something seriously wrong with yep, our society. And see the grotesque incompetence of essentially every country in the West uh, just had to underline, the, you know, the things we've been saying all along that we have not, we do not have the wisdom to go with our power. Yep. And, uh, and so I'm very positive about that. I also really love the turn that's being taken in the game B world right now. And that is uh, we've come to the conclusion that we have a lot of good theory, but we have to start putting it into practice and trying it out. And so uh, so-called proto-bees, on-the-ground right. communities, uh, people uh, around 150 people, maybe 300, mm -hmm. uh, Jordan Hall calls civium, very yep. similar concepts, they're really the same concepts. Uh, civium is a flavor of proto-bee. Yep. essentially. Right. Well, and, we got a, we got a variation selection retention on the exactly. And that's a hugely relevant to how we see game B unfolding. So uh, two have already bought their land and are beginning to build their communities. Mm. Uh, a third has just is about to make an offer. A fourth is looking for land in the Shenandoah Valley of Virginia. Ooh, hey, uh, that's exciting and, for us. <laughs> and, uh, uh, and I would expect there to be uh, maybe five, five additional ones next year. We have a thing called the Proto B Incubator, where you have people who are working on the earliest stages of planning, thinking through how to do the financing, how to do sewage. You know, from one extreme financing, the other extreme sewage, right? Yeah. Uh, and then, really importantly, how do we govern ourselves in a in a an emergent network based? non-hierarchical, non-command and control fashion. That's the question I'm most interested in. Mm -hmm. So uh, I think that the Game B movement will become much more interesting and more persuasive when we have on-the-ground examples that totally. actually work. 
I mean, yeah, right. the real world people. tends to be more complicated than our theories about the real world. And we will find that some <laughs> of our theories are just fucking wrong, guys. Right. Uh, and that's fine. You know, we, you know, again, I think that one of the core things of game B is do not fall in love with your theory. Your theory is a way to a lens to look at reality, but reality bats last people. So uh, I'm looking very <laughs> like much. For, I heard you say that before. I like that. Yeah, it's. Uh, uh, I think it's really, really important. And then, and the and then next year, I'm going to put some of my own efforts into what we call Game B Ventures. Okay. Uh, and there are some who are labeling themselves Game B Ventures already. Uh, but I think we'll get a little bit more formal in what that means and encourage uh, businesses, mostly in co- employee-owned cooperative structures, uh, using the new laws available probably in Colorado, which you can apply mm-hmm. in any state in the union, uh, for so-called hybrid coll- uh, collaboratives, which are more mm-hmm. investor-friendly. And can we build ventures that model Game B ways of approaching the world, and yet are also highly efficacious at outcompeting Game A at its own Well, you uh, have to game. be able to do that, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. and that's very important. We're not you two. We're not hippies in mud huts here, right? <laughs> uh, we know that we have to be able to outcompete Game A, at least in some niches, uh, and that's a, you know the thing about species, niche selection, niche construction, uh, and be able to literally pump resources from game A into building out game B. And so you know if we build if we get two or three proto B started this year, five next year, 25 the year after that, 100, 500, 5,000, uh, you know off we go. Oh, I'm saying and, exponential growth curves that can work pretty well. <laughs> yeah, you get R greater than one, and uh, you know, uh, and some of them will fail. It's probably some of them will turn bad. I don't doubt some of them will be captured by, as, by sex cult leaders and uh, crazy shit. Like that's okay. We we understand that. We won't be surprised by it. Uh, but we will learn. We you know already define the fact that proto bees have to always be in horizontal communication with each other, sharing best mm-hmm. practices creating things we call X in a box. How did how do you solve sewage in a you know mm-hmm. off the grid community or near the, or just barely on the grid community? Uh, mm-hmm. Does it make, you know, uh, and in what climates does it make sense to have open field agriculture versus greenhouse agriculture? Uh, you know, is liquid democracy a reasonable way to do governance uh, or is there some better way? What about uh, sociocracy? Is that an interesting uh, small group self-organizing and governance systems. Uh, one of the Arabis has committed to using sociocracy as its uh, governance toolkit. Does that work? Mm. If so, to what degree? Uh, right. So there's a shitload of tangible, huh. practical questions that need to be answered. And uh, mm. the only way you can Exciting. answer them is by doing it. So I'm right. very excited by this turn to the doing right. uh, while we continue to move the theory forward. Wonderful. Are you, in terms of the uh, this book, are can you give us a little bit more specificity about what you envision putting in there? And is it is it delineating this shift to the practicum and the setting up proto bees? Is it consolidating the vision according to Jim Rupp? Well, you know, with the caveats, is it trying to consolidate the kind of the movement identity? Is it all uh, that? Or? Yeah, this is a bit of the challenge. It's all the above, <laughs> and all and also explaining a little bit about the history of how we got to where we are. Okay. Mm-hmm. And uh, but I've also given myself a constraint. And I was just talking to another uh, successful author uh, this morning about this. Uh, I have uh, set myself the, uh, a series of parameters that make stuffing all this into the book really hard. I have okay. decided the book should be 85,000 words, okay, which is about 275 pages of trade paperback size, yeah. uh, plus appendices and uh, glossary. Mm-hmm. Uh, but 
uh, 85,000 words, and it has to be written for a bookish 15-year-old. Oh, geez. Uh, right, and, that, well. and the key takeaway from bookish 15-year-old is, okay, they can read, uh, you know, a, a sentence that includes a semicolon, but they're unlikely to, to have a lot of domain knowledge. So yep. assume no knowledge. Do not do not assume that they know uh, about, you know, the shit show that was uh, July 1914. You know? Mm. Uh, you know, people like you and I, we can just refer to you know, the fucked up mess of 1914. Sure. And we can assume that we both have reasonable knowledge of what that was all about. But with a 15-year-old, they, they won't. And so uh, if I'm going to refer to 1914, I'm going to have to explain it. And so what's even a bigger load on my 85 Yeah, no doubt. That's going to so, be, uh, you have to hone your prose there. <laughs> yeah, in fact, I've been intentionally reading very um, terse, but excellent writers like Hemingway, Hemingway comes to mind. Yeah, yeah, Cormac McCarthy. At least some, uh, many of his books are written that way. And one of my current faves, Peter Heller, uh, mm-hmm. who's a, a novelist who's writing right now. Uh, the Dog Stars is an amazing book. The River is another amazing book. His newest one, The Guide, is another amazing book. And they're very Hemingway esque, so terse mm-hmm. that. But he brings a tremendous amount into mm-hmm. a small number of words. Totally. And, of course, I'm going to have to just leave a lot of my favorite little things out, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I probably mm-hmm. won't be able to tell the tale of uh, 2013, 2014, and the five stand meetings. I mm-hmm. might allude to it and point people to the very excellent Rebel Wisdom video. Yes, yes. That's uh, uh, on that, for instance. So I'll be making a lot of those kind of editorial uh, decisions what to leave in, what to leave out, and what to point people towards to get this story across in a digestible and accessible fashion for that bookish 15-year-old. All right. That sounds great. That sounds uh, um, In terms of sort of the either the content or just the live connections that you're making right now, you know, what are, in addition to the Proto-B communities, are there ideas that you see that are uh, sort of on the cutting edge that uh, inform the evolution, because I know when it did come together, there were some tough spots in terms of the original game B. Like, and my understanding was there's some folks that were focused on society systems, sort of top down stuff, some others in terms of sort of development of the self and those kinds of ah, issues. Exactly. There's a great question because, mm-hmm. yeah, that was indeed what caused the big crack up, uh, which was uh, basically two factions one who said we have to build institutions first, right? Not necessarily top down, it could be bottom up, but, they, okay. but mm-hmm. the institutional but focus, the social systemic institutional people, yeah, mm-hmm. the, uh, the, the literal social operating system, yep. Mm-hmm. And then there was the uh, well, we can't build uh, good institutions until we have uh, significant personal change, uh, mm-hmm. and the, the, the it's like a battle got, between psychologists and sociologists, yeah, very similar, <laughs> right? In fact, you could call it that. And uh, it got ugly. And I don't know, mm. I'm not quite sure why. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, of course- Well, sociologists and psychologists never talk to each other. So that's a, maybe that's why. <laughs> and that may be why. And so we eventually just said, fuck this. You know, we don't mm. need to be fighting with each other all the time. And we uh, uh, we uh, made a decision. To, we, we said, put game B into spore mode. Okay, right, we've I all learned so. a lot. Spores go out into the world, do your thing. And then by chance, the spores refruited and got going again. Mm -hmm. And I think the thing that's allowed it to be so much more generative this time is that we all learn that they, it's so it's so hilarious, nature versus nurture, you know, the answer is always both. And I would say my synthesis, and I think this is shared by a lot of people, I wouldn't claim everybody, uh, is that it's a very interesting co-evolution between personal change and social institutional development. And that I do think that the, the personal change people were right, that 
we have to increase human capacity to create the kinds of institutions that we want. But mm-hmm. I think the institution people were right also that uh, uh, the right kinds of institutions scaffold our ability to change. Mm-hmm. Again, to this point that as isolated, individualistic islands, our ability mm-hmm. uh, to maintain good behavior and, and generative ways of living is really difficult. You're constantly bombarded by radio and TV and Facebook and Twitter and your friends with their shiny BMWs and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. It's really hard to, uh, you know, to resist all those uh, temptations. Well, if you uh, have a, a community and, an or- and a social system, which reinforces, modify, uh, uh, you know, reinforces and stimulates and supports, scaffolds uh, mm-hmm. good, uh, righteous behavior, the two co-evolve. And mm-hmm. as people get more capable, what we call sovereignty and capacity, mm-hmm. then the ability to build interesting and new and even unforeseen forms of uh, social operating system gets stronger and stronger. Totally. Love and, it. And I think this is really important. And you mentioned, uh, I guess in our pre-show, uh, you know, uh, some of our adjacent neighbors in radical social change mm-hmm. space. Uh, metamodernism is one of those, yep. right? And they make a similar distinction totally. uh, that we have to work on ourselves so that we can create better ways of living together cooperatively and socially. And the two are intimately interwoven. And I love the concept of co-evolution as uh a way to think about this was actually a, it's a key concept in evolutionary computing as well as in uh, evolutionary theory from the biological world, and uh, so that's I think one of the p- points I'm going to you know really try to get across that uh, this uh, that we have to be working on both all the time and it's Beautiful. not an either and neither or uh, kind of thing. Totally love that, and I totally agree that the uh, um, that I love the meta modern space. I mean, for me, you know, I was just pretty much working on my own inside of the academy at the level of psychology, psychotherapy, and then got bumped out. Basically, I got attacked a little bit by wokeism, and then there were other stuff that was going on. And then voila, I found myself in this space, intellectual dark deep web, rebel wisdom, stoa, game B, metamodern. It's just amazing, super fascinating uh, in, in relationship to that. And then to see the game B articulation and its metamodern, you know, and have that idea ideology uh, both in relationship to, hey, the danger, the beauty of the past, the danger of the past, and then this, how are we going to cultivate self and society and proper relations so that we evolve to a meta-sustainable rather than the meta-crisis structure, which is so um, fascinating to see that zeitgeist emerge, you know, uh, across many different domains and to feel myself pulled into it, but not be connected. And then all of a sudden sort of wake up to the a landscape of, of people that are, you know, involved in a similar kind of evolution and network with them. Uh, it's For me, it's been a really, really wonderful couple of years in that regard. And, and it is amazing. I mean, there are lots now of people that are on similar missions. We're now starting to talk to each other. I was on a conference uh, over the weekend where 100 people showed up from various uh, oh. uh, uh, change organizations of various sorts. Uh, we have another little project called the Big Change Coalition, where at this point we've limited it to just 10 or so, so we can get to know each other well. But our, right, our goal right, is, right. is to grow it eventually. Uh, because, again, because we are uh, not doctrinaire, uh, mm-hmm. there's mm-hmm. lots of room to collaborate and for people to go in different directions. Uh, i give another example. I uh, posted a, a call on the Game B home website, the Game B dashboard website yesterday. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, to uh, somebody reach out to me who's running a solar punk summit in Austin in October. And, (laughs) and, uh, you know, she's well aware of game B and has actually Mm -hmm, participated. mm -hmm. 
Uh, we've all thought of solar punk as one of our adjacent, mm-hmm. you know, we have some agreements with them and some disagreements, but enough agreements that we consider ourselves uh, co-travelers and see, you know, you know, requested that we put together a group of people to be on a panel at the solar punk uh, summit. Oh. And I said, a great opportunity. So I put the, oh. uh, the call out and said, anyone who lives in, in or around Austin, Texas, and mm. if you're available in October, you know, uh, reach out mm-hmm. and, and talk to Angel and uh, see if, uh, uh, you know, you guys can come to an agreement on when you could do this uh, panel discussion to let the broader solar punk people know a little bit more about Game B. Beautiful. Beautiful. Yeah, that's what really feels like there is uh, gave me hope is that I'm seeing a weave of network uh, of people that are pulled into the zeitgeist. And now there's enough of a space so that, it's, you know, if it reaches enough connectivity, then all of a sudden it will become a centering hub. And I'm feeling that weave uh, emerge. And so that's definitely exciting. Yeah, um, and, and, and we're all in favor of that. You know, we, yeah. uh, you know, we think that uh, as long as we're all on similar journeys, uh, you know, uh, a concept I've tried to popularize, I call coherent pluralism, Yep. Uh, which is have a, a small coherent core of things that we see in, in the Big Change Coalition. We actually created a statement of six statements that we all agree with, amazingly. And uh, and they said, you know, but outside that, uh, if you want people, some people want to, epi- you know, emphasize economics, some want to emphasize, uh, you know, family, some want to edu- uh, emphasize education. Uh, some want to edu- uh, emphasize uh, collaborative entrepreneurhood. Great, right? Oh. Uh, the, the, the world of the alternative operating system is so huge. Uh, there's no limit uh, for any time soon on the work that needs to be done. And so different groups with different interests and different priorities, uh, uh, you know, ought to work and ought to encourage horizontal communications. You know, Absolutely. Yeah, this is how uh, this is how we can all learn from each other and gradually and non-dogmatically work towards a, a new and totally. glorious future for humanity. And that's important. You know, sometimes a meta crisis looks so dark, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. People can get into a tailspin about this. And uh, I'd like to say, you know, there is a way forward, right? There Absolutely. is a way forward. There will be a way forward. I'm, uh, I'm more optimistic than pessimistic, although I feel some of the darkness, definitely. Yeah, and, and, and yes, some of the, and we should be prepared for the darkness. Mm-hmm. And, and in the darkness, there may be some opportunities too, right? Absolutely. In fact, in the book, I focus mostly on what I call the long road to game B, mm-hmm. uh, which is assuming we can get there without a social cataclysm. Uh, and it might take 80 years. That's my yeah. guess. Uh, on the other hand, I will have a, a section, a couple of two or three chapters on the short road to game B. Mm, uh, you yeah. know, what mm-hmm. happens if the shit does hit the fan? How can mm. game B move forward rapidly and help catch society? Mm, help some and, of the collapsing society. Yeah, yes. Yeah. And, and hopefully it won't come to that. But I think we need to be open minded and say it could. Uh, totally. And but and, you know, uh, uh maintaining psychological equilibrium in this tension between this glorious future, the long road to game B, no collapse, and the possibility uh, yep. that we that we might have to confront collapse and be psychologically prepared and operationally comp- prepared to deal with that contingency should it happen. Love uh, it. I think Love that's, re- that's exactly the kind of framing flexibility, uh, breadth uh, and depth across the wide variety of systems is crucial. Yeah. Oh yeah, one thing I should, should definitely talk about, I know it would be interest to you, particularly with your clinical psychological background, is uh, one of the key things that we call out uh, in uh, the Game B thinking uh, is uh, psychotechnologies. I think we actually took the name from John Verveke. Yeah, that's where I certainly first heard it. So, but I'm yeah. loving that it's populating. Uh-huh. Yeah, and uh, I think Jordan Hall is the one who brought it into Game B. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, right now, I am 
uh, plowing my way through Verbeke's 50 yeah. episodes, Awakening from the Meeting Crisis. I did episode 45 yesterday. All right. Uh, All right. You're making it then. You know, yeah. I'm going to have uh, Johnny V on my podcast for three episodes in October. And we're going to work through his book in considerable, right. I mean, not his book, but his video series in considerable detail. And so anyway, Psychotechnologies is uh, something that has caught our attention. And we have cooked uh, it into uh, you know the game bee thing, particularly around the proto bees, that uh, we would expect each proto bee to uh, choose for itself uh, using a concept that Jordan uh, created called meta psychotechnologies, uh, which John has picked up now and uses yep. and credits Jordan as the originator of, yep. uh, which is to say, all right, what set of subset of the psychotechnologies on offer or available? Uh, ought we to emphasize within our proto B and psychotechnologies can include things from uh, meditation to totally. psycho traditional medical uh, psychotherapy uh, to psychedelics to breath work to uh, uh, you know being in the flow state uh, to uh, completely yeah uh, to dance uh, to martial arts uh, these are all psychotechnologies which help help mold us as our human capacity and sovereignty. And I do expect that the proto bees will differ significantly. You know, some will be interested in quiet introspection. Uh, some will be more for ecstasis and <laughs> dance and song and martial arts and flow states and uh, extreme sports and things of that sort. And that's good. And then the psychotechnologies that each proto bee chooses uh, will coevolutionarily uh, upgrade the capacity for the individual, but in different ways, right? Oh. And then that will mean that different institutions will arise within those proto bees, uh, and we'll be able to see, uh, and there'll be some learnings on what works, what doesn't, and what I suspect we'll find is there are multiple ways that work. I would imagine and if we can hold, and if we can keep centered on the concept of coherent pluralism, uh, and say that that is a good thing. You know, these are not. Uh, these are not heretics that need to be stamped out. Uh, these are fellow travelers who found yet another way forward, which is so exciting to me. No, I mean, all of this is just uh, the synergy here is really unbelievable. So just to give you just give some listeners some ideas. So when I wrote my book, 2011, um, I called it a post-postmodern uh, grand meta narrative. Okay, In other words, a meta-modern framing that affords a particular. And then I framed it as an integrated pluralism. <laughs> coherent pluralism. In other words, the dialectic at the one level of, of a center that then can be viewed from a wide variety of different perspectives and cultivating a dialectic between integration. And that then translates into a coherent center, coherent pluralism around it in relation and affording that dialectic is exactly. Um, and then the other thing that the unified theories, you know, you, psychology is all fucked up, as you know, Jim, in relationship to a discipline. Um, and so then the bridge between our scientific understanding of psychology at the animal level, at the human level, and then the translation of that into therapeutics um, and the whole, the, the you talk structure is the bridging between a science of psychology that gives rise to the psychotherapeutic technologies uh, that afford us uh, ways to orient towards well-being and wisdom and fulfillment, as opposed to neurotic immaturity and struggle and and you know a felt sense of entanglement with life in a way that leaves you bitter and unfulfilled. Absolutely, and I will say uh, Verbeke has really opened my eyes a fair bit uh, to that as well. So I think that there's, and again, this is what I find so exciting. Uh, there's people like Verbeke, people like yourself. Uh, who come from the discipline of psychology. Although Verbeke is in interesting. He's uh, both a philosopher and a cognitive scientist. 
Uh, and so, he, you know, right. Well, it's a really interesting. I mean, this is all part from, from, from me embedded in psychology. A lot of that is just because psychology is so fucked up. We gave rise to cognitive science. Exactly. People were like, I'm, I'm basically done with you losers and behaviorism and whatever the hell happened there. And then artificial Freudianism, intelligence. And all this kind of bogus it's like, shit, oh, well, right? hey, you know, we have information science and theory now emerging. We have artificial models and we have better cybernetics. So fuck you guys. We're just going to do cognitive science. It's like, exactly. OK, it's but yeah, but we just broke off now a whole nother chunk of confusion at one level. But anyway, obviously, yeah. and John and I. I mean, this is one of the other things been super from a meta theory perspective, a meta psychology perspective. John, me and Zach Stein are doing a meta psychology on transformation. There's the transformation aspect that says, OK, what's human nature um, from our various perspectives as an educational developmental psychologist for Zach, me as a clinical therapeutic and theoretical psychologist, John, cognitive science and philosophy and the synergy of the meta psych perspective now, but that's emerging um, is super exciting, both in relationship to its connection to science and connection to humanistic value-based living. So there, and this is one of the things, I don't know if you have this sense, well, I have this sense very strongly um, for the hopefulness, and I'd like to get your take, is that there's an, there's an opportunity here for sort of a new enlightenment, an enlightenment 2.0. You know, oh, I, absolutely. Uh, I, love, I, I, I love that terminology yeah. and I use it myself. You know, in, in some quarters, uh, the Enlightenment somehow has got come into bad repute, you know. and Well, you uh, got the postmodern critique of it, which I know you're a huge fan. Oh, fuck them people, <laughs> right? Uh, you know, as I said, now, but to me again, uh, you know, I'm famous for saying fuck them people. But yeah, let's yeah. be honest, uh, you know, game A needed a serious and deep critique. Yep. And when postmodernism uh, restricted itself to critique. It was a hugely valuable movement, right? Uh, mm -hmm. And even those unreadable French uh, postmodernists created some very interesting <laughs> tools that are quite useful. Uh, but when people then started to take postmodernism and thought it was the basis for a way forward, that's when it went to hell. That is a fundamental difference between a sophisticated critique and it, uh, shifting it to a constructive argument that we, uh, the way we ought to live, which then becomes an unbelievable performative contradiction in crazy totalitarian speak. <laughs> exactly. So that's so there's a little bit nuanced version of my fuck them people, right? Uh, but nonetheless, fuck them people, at least when it comes to the road. <laughs> I'll offer the nuanced interpretation, but as I appreciate the straightforward, let's uh, let's uh, let's go with the Jim Rutt view. That's why we're here on the podcast. I got a good question. I got a question for you. Yep. Um, you know, I, you know, as you know, I read very widely and follow various threads that turn up uh, from various threads. I've recently I'm reading right now a, a, an interesting, somewhat peculiar book uh, called The Master and His Emissary by Ian McGilchrist. Sure. 100, uh, absolutely. hundred mm -hmm. uh, percent. And uh, you know, I was prob I'm probably 50 pages in. Uh, as far as I can tell, his thesis is uh, that the. Uh, the differences between the hemispheres of the human brain, the right hemisphere and the left hemisphere, yep. uh, are quite substantial. Yep. Uh, and of course, he uh, is very careful to distance himself from the pop psychology right now. Right. Right. Hey, it's language and feeling, I thought. Yeah, or, or male and female. <laughs> or, or even you know, worse. Uh, and, oh, God. You know, and he's very, very careful to distance himself. Uh, but he goes into the research, great, very depth, great depth. And he's, he's foreshadowed that he hasn't yet delivered, uh, that he believes that uh, there are very big differences, including worldviews and things of that sort, and even how we pay attention. And that uh, his argument is going to be that uh, game A uh, essentially has overemphasized left brain at the expense of right brain. Yep. And that, that is one of the generator functions, as we'd say in game B speak, uh, to the meta crises. 
you know, I can I can give you a snapshot on that analysis if you want. I am your theory guy after all. So <laughs> let, let her rip. I figured that you'd have uh, you'd be familiar with uh, McGill Chris. And I will say the book is uh, nicely written so far. And uh, I would encourage anyone who's interested in this kind of stuff that it's uh, not a hard read. It's written for a uh, smart general audience. Uh, so anyway, what's your take on McGill Christ and his his ideas? Totally. So um, the basic idea that you want a system uh, that orients towards the figure and specificity uh, and to be able to then grasp something, uh, which is then becomes the basic animalistic structure of the left brain relative to a gestalt generalized gripping of the animal environment relation that both uh, alerts you to potential danger and affords a much more broad participatory grip of the agent arena relationship is pretty valid. Um, and then the thing that really gets honed in on it is that if you're going to engage in propositional language, uh, the propositional language, language acquisition device has got to tag the specificity, the figures that come off the ground and generate a symbolic syntactical structure. So then you get in us as humans, you do get the yoking of the propositional figure that specifies what it is that we are talking about with factual assertion and gets pissed off if it's not, if it's challenged in a justificatory way uh, versus a much more perspective or participatory intuitive gripping of the holistic structure of the relationship of the animal and the environment. Uh, there are good reasons to believe that that is a pretty good uh, way to describe the relative specializations of the hemispheres. Okay. Um, then what you can then argue, I think, with a high degree of, uh, you know, uh, I mean, obviously, broads, but what happens with the fucking scientific, uh, you know, modern, empirical, natural, scientific evolution and enterprise? Um, you can certainly argue that, well, we used to have, and they had their problems and everything else. But if we go back to the oral indigenous phase, the embodiment in relation and conversation, I'll use John's terms here, the, the procedural perspectival and participatory modes of knowing relative to then basic rationalizations about what the hell might be happening in the world was much more entangled and embodied, um, enacted in naturalized. And then we move into traditional cities where you actually have to build then regulatory structures of justification to manage the institutions, that you get refined narratives about the way the world works. We're now moving into sort of being coordinated by refined knowledge systems. But you could could argue, I think, that the ways in which some of the religions do that could, are more potentially embodied. Um, what you see within the Western natural scientific move, the Rene Descartes move, that you can achieve analysis, I mean, achieve knowledge through, uh, you know, logical, mathematical, deductive analysis, um, and a whole host of other things. And then the power of both science and technology, the technology rising us above nature, and then the propositional knowledge analysis and the power that that generated um, then creates an imbalance in relationship to what it is that we value, how we think of what truth is, how we think about what knowledge is. And we get a propositional, specific, analytic articulation of truth. So we get a left hemisphere over right hemisphere in balance. Um, if we put it in John Verveke's language, it's the propositional specificity domain that then becomes the key truth analysis versus our perspectival participatory procedural knowing. And if we want sort of whole humans that are uh, not just analytically, propositionally specific in the way they justify, but also embody perspectival, you know, enacting human beings uh, in a complicated relation. We actually want the whole package there uh, in relation. And so that's part of the move to shift from a specific propositional 
left hemisphere quasi male dominate because there is an analytic instrumental aspect of the male energy that comes off of there uh, versus a more holistic embody and reaching to some things like transcendence, uh, even psychedelic exploration to achieve not propositional knowledge about the self-world relation, but perspectival participatory knowledge of an intuition about what's gripping oneself in relationship to the world, you know, uh, that that sense of being in the world that's not propositional. So uh, that's what that's a brief summary. Uh, that's great because it, it, it sounds like it uh, does touch Verveke in a lot of places. I noticed after I ran into McGilchrist, I was curious if Verveke and uh, McGilchrist had ever spoken. It turns out there's a Rebel Wisdom video of the two of them. Um, there is uh, indeed, and that's how they that is how they sync up. Uh, they recognize the left hemisphere. I mean, he, he, you know, he's emphasizing the right hemisphere has some linguistic, and that's the old. That's part of the old. And, and McGill Chris is trying to bring us out of that because he's identifying really the animalistic figure versus ground differentiation of the left hemisphere specificity. And by the way, why are we right-handed? Because you have to pick up certain kinds of things. So you have to hone in on, I now, my right hemisphere sees this fucking cup and what it affords me, my, uh, I mean, sorry, my left hemisphere, right hand, uh, my right uh, hemisphere, left hand, my shield is sort of where am I in the gestalt of, of the of the room. Um, so, and there are good reasons why you'd want opponent processes between specific uh, precision, that kind of thing, and gestalt gripping. Um, there'd be good reasons why you'd want good opponent process along those lines. Yeah, it sounds great. I'm looking forward to finishing, you know, um, I said about 40 pages in, look forward to, to reading it because it sounds like it uh, stitches together, uh, you know, various things that I'm currently interested in. And that's the, to me, that's a super exciting time about, there's an, where we couldn't find, the problem of psychology, as I highlight, is a, is a great historical analysis of our fucking inability to stitch shit together. We just didn't have the tools, the technologies, the mindset. What came off of Enlightenment 1.0 was great for classical mechanics, into quantum mechanics and general relativity, up into chemistry. Then we get Darwinian shit, and then we can trail the molecular biological line. And we blended animals and neuroscience. And then all of a sudden it goes to fucking hell at the level of conceptual clarity. And then we're now able to pick up that baton and start an integrated pluralistic stitching to afford us both coherence in relationship to what we are saying from a complex dynamic adaptive system way and even bridge into real genuine practical guidance for living so we can actually look to our knowledge systems to afford us uh, ways to for fulfillment, which a lot of the early science shit like John Watson's crap, for example, leads us into a shit show of, of stupidity in the way we actually treat humans. Yeah, it's amazing. And of course, uh, as you know, better than most, uh, unfortunately, a lot of this uh, lack of such integration comes from the, the incentives and structures of uh, university-based uh, research and, and higher education. Yeah, it's a cutting edge, so you create an institutional system that rewards the cutting edge. And, and if you don't have a big picture view, you have to slice, a, to use John's term, you have to specialize a particular piece. You got to get specialty in there. Then we create all this fucking knowledge. Then you hone in on the specialty and we want people on the cutting edge. But yeah, it, it gutted the big picture view and then couldn't provide any genuine structure for advance. They tried in the 1920s, <clears throat> but it gets blown to shit. And then we have this fragmented empirical pluralism that really has no goddamn coherence at the center. It's a nightmare. Yeah, in fact, the, uh, you know, the kind of the pop saying, is, what's a PhD? It's someone who knows more and more about less and less until they know absolutely everything about absolutely nothing, right? Totally. Uh, it's, a, it's a little unfair because, you, know, you know, the reductionist science is indispensable, right? Totally. You know, uh, but this is the big but, and this is what the Santa Fe Institute's always been about, is let us take the learnings from 
reduction of science, the details, and look at them in the bigger picture. How do they relate to each other? When I describe complexity science for people in short, I say uh, reduction of science is the study of the dancer, while complexity is the study of the dance. Nice. Okay. And, yep. and I think, mm-hmm. uh, and you got to study both. <laughs> and in fact, uh, you know, we argue at Santa Fe Institute, uh, I think you probably agree, that society has way overshot in terms of its allocation of resources to reduction of science uh, at the expense of integration, holistic and cross-disciplinary, uh, you know, integrated views of the sort that you do and of the sort that we do at the Santa Fe Institute. No, it's been a real problem. Uh, you know, they're really, we, you know, the old paradigm and put people in sort of charge of the best of our knowledge because they could delineate the reductive line and they're like, oh, well, that's the hard no shit. It's actually, no, that's one aspect of the hard no shit that is crucial, but it is not, you're not clapping with both hands if you just do reductive physicalism by any fucking stretch and think that you can deduce and reduce truth to the bottom layer or whatever. Where are you going to end up? Quantum field theory? I mean, it's fucking absurd. You have to complement that with a holistic, complexified, dynamic operating view. And if you do, I think that affords the much more a metaphysical being from science that is much more enriching for our everyday lives. That's certainly my point, you know, because a lot of people are like, well, I'm just a bunch of chemicals. I'm like, no, that's not the right fucking to frame your life. Yeah, yeah. The, the just is the problem there because you are a bag of chemicals. But the, you know, exactly. the just of- is the fucking problem. It's not yeah, just matter and energy. You're also a living organism. You're a mental organism that actually has experiences. You're a human organism that justifies what the fuck you're doing. So you're not just a bag of chemicals. You're this and all these other layers of complexification. And indeed, if you pay attention to what you care about, it's the culture, person, animal, mental layers of complexification that you actually give a shit about. You'll just be a bag of chemicals when you fucking die. Exactly. You'll be worth a dollar ninety eight or whatever it was. They, uh, they, uh, they, when I was a kid, I used to say it was ninety eight cents. The, you know, what is the value of, the, of you as a, a series of elements, right? Uh, and uh, uh, but okay. it's but it's the structural functional uh, stuff that has emerged over billions of years. That's the interesting part. You know, I, I'm still in awe of life, for instance. Oh, right. It is totally. Uh, and, and the fact that every single alive thing on Earth. It's alive today, as far as we can tell, has a single uh, first common ancestor. Luca, baby. Last Luca universal ca- common ancestor. Absolutely. Yeah, it's amazing, amazing right? That, That's that, unbelievable. And, and that, Almost uh, makes you religious, doesn't it, Jim? <laughs> no. no. But uh, the, uh, and of course, you know, the question of the origin of life is still a well, big open I, question. And, I agree. You know, that there's, uh, you know, we're not we having. We had some great people at San Fe Institute <laughs> working on it. Uh, do you, do you have a uh, do you like lipid formation? You like RNA world? I know you're kind of skeptical of the final jump, but do you, do you have you put your money on any particular uh, no, origin of life force? I don't know enough about it. Uh, I mean, I've you know read a lot about it and talked to some of the leading thinkers in the field. Me um, neither. So, I'm just but thinking. I uh, but I, at this point, uh, I'm just sort of sitting back and waiting for the experts to to learn more. Mm-hmm. Uh, though I will say, uh, it, even the Harold Morowitz is kind of was my guru in this uh, space. He was one of the inventors of the field of origins of life. Passed away a couple of years ago, and he and Eric Smith wrote an astoundingly good book on it. Um, you know, Harold, to his dying day, uh, did not rule out uh, panspermia. Mm-hmm. You know, the idea that uh, because of this, as we've talked about before, this very difficult problem of how do you get from the RNA world to the DNA world is no obvious way, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and totally. the argument from evolution is eh, tenuous at best, right? Uh, maybe 
Uh, it happened once in the galaxy and has been gradually spreading around the galaxy via oh. you know, rogue comets and what have you. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe, but uh, his, he, has, he has other theories. One of them is that uh, uh, we have not explored pressure and temperature as much as we should have mm-hmm. uh, for the reactions. And maybe it was the pressure and temperature deep within the earth, maybe a mile below the surface, mm-hmm. uh, where the, uh, the pressure and temperature allowed reactions to occur that don't occur at standard right. temperature and nice. pressure. Yep. Uh, and again, Fascinating. He, you know, on the other hand, if he had to put a single bet down, he put a small bet down on the, uh, uh, you know, the chemical evolution at the black, uh, uh, the black cloud steamers in the bottom gotcha. of the ocean uh-huh. where you know, uh-huh. hydrogen sulfide and other energy rich uh, compounds were coming raw out of the earth and provided the fuel for uh, yeah. the original life. But he's not highly confident of it. He's mm-hmm. still still entertained uh, deep earth. He still entertained panspermia and says, we just don't know. And so yep. if, if Harold says he don't know, Jim says he don't know. Fair right? enough. I'm in the same boat. I, I, I recently read Lane's, uh, I think it's Vital Questions or something, 2016 book on alkaline vents uh, as, as affording a particular fascinating set of structures that in, do enable at least a vision of creating lipid structures plus the capture RNA structures and then put them together. Yep. <laughs> hey, you might yep. want to fill that step in, but you know. <laughs> it's like the old uh, cartoon. Yep. Uh, and then a miracle happens. And then a miracle occurs. <laughs> I think your proof needs a little more. There might be some more things to be filled out there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, The I still, uh, you know, just to you know, reiterate, I still... I had an amazing four-hour conversation with Stuart Kaufman about this one time about you know the the problem is that the error catastrophe and you know from uh, you know the math yep. of evolution when the error rate in, in duplication is too high you can't build much structure in evolution you can build a little bit but not a lot and you know the amazing complexity of the DNA replication and error checking machinery uh, how the hell you could have been bootstrapped that from the high error rate RNA world. Uh, in a mere half a billion years, uh, still I still find uh, mathematically implausible. Mm. And, yep, and, it's definitely one of the. And, of course, Stuart, it's on the TOK. It's one of the great jumps of complexification. Yeah, uh, Stewart agreed. He said he, yeah, he knew about as much about this as anybody. He said, mm-hmm. "Yep, uh, you mm. are correct that we do not have a." You know, was it just pure blind luck or mm-hmm. what? Or is there some mechanism that we did not just don't understand? Mm-hmm. Uh, but anyway, so, you know, I, I, so I remain uh, uh, completely agnostic on origin of life, mm-hmm. uh, just as I do my other favorite question, which is, are we alone in the search for extraterrestrial mm-hmm. intelligence? You know, as a nerdy 14-year-old, I was sure the answer was, of course, there's tens of thousands of civilizations mm-hmm. out there. Just read Heinlein, right? Nazimov. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, the more I've learned, the more I... Uh, I'm able to hold in the view that it's possible that we are alone. And if we are, it's scary and exciting. It means that humanity has an even bigger obligation not to blow itself up, Mm -hmm. right? And maybe Mm -hmm. our destiny is to bring the universe to life, this Mm. big, cold, physical, you know, somewhat uninteresting universe, which were the tiniest little speck. Uh, But yet, if we can survive the next few thousand years, Perfectly plausible. We could bring the universe to life. If you, if you look at the universe through the lens of complexification, I like to say we burn like a quasar of complexity in the night sky. If you look at yeah, we are, you know, as far as we know, uh, the level of complexity and the level of reverse entropy, as you say, it's a quasar level compared to yeah. anything else. Yeah, in the ballpark. Nothing that else we know. In the damn that we know. That we're aware. We know. But obviously, 
Right, and all the weird, uh, you know, UFO shit, you know, that way, head scratching shit. But anyway, nothing in it for me enough to say, oh, we're not by any stretch. But anyway. But I think the big, the big meta thing here is to encourage people to say is that to living with the statement, I don't know, we don't know. Is, and so many people find that difficult. You know, like people, you know, it seems like, and this is, you know, some of the Verbeke stuff, other people, mm-hmm. some people seem to really want some overarching meaning for life, meaning for human life. And I go, why would we expect to have a view on that at this early stage when we're just this tiny little speck mm-hmm. uh, and don't really understand physics fully yet, don't understand biology at all, don't understand the brain hardly at all? Uh, why should we have a view on the overarching meaning of life at this stage? seems to me a ridiculous thing to aspire to. I'm very happy to say, I don't know. And, you know, you know humanity may eventually get enough knowledge of all these other uh, disciplines to be able to have a perspective, or it may be it's one of those unanswerable things. And yep. that's okay. We yeah, have a universe. No, I, we have a universe. We have some capacities. Let's go do something interesting. Well, my frame on that, yes, I'm, I start with agnosticism. I'm a scientist. You, know, you're, you don't start with fundamental capital T truth shit. You know, what the fuck? Uh, anything that the whatever the real is, we develop these models of it based on our talking ape capacities. Um, so totally. The one thing I will say, though, is that we can we are on the cusp of building d- better fucking models of the whole. That's what the whole Enlightenment 2.0 for me, you know, certainly centered on the tree of knowledge and the whole garden is like, actually, we can map the complexification that we have mapped with a lot more fucking coherence than people than the current intelligentsia would have you believe. So that's my that's the pitch on the other side of actually there's a lot more unified knowledge available to us where you can then specify with a lot more coherence um, than seems to be the case if you just so go on to closer to truth and plug push play and you get six billion different perspectives that at least if you're not listening, know how to listen, they don't cohere. We can learn how to listen so they cohere. At least that's my little unified theory pitch. And I absolutely agree with you. And in fact, I find tiresome. On the flip side, the people who set up this straw man of ultra reductionist science, right? Mm-hmm. If you talk to any great scientist today, I and I talk to great scientists regularly. I don't know a one that's a radical reductionist. I think uh, that's a dying breed. Uh, and they all uh, vary varying degrees. I mean, some are you know the Santa Fe Institute people are just are native complexitarians and mm-hmm. yeah, uh, no, and there's all, a wide variety. Of there's a wide variety, but I don't know any top tier scientists who's a radical reductionist today. And this idea that, uh, uh, which you read a lot uh, in some, especially alternative kinds of stuff in the game B adjacent space of setting up the straw man uh, against uh, modern science strikes me as also an overreaction. Right. Uh, no, you get sort of a post-material woo on one hand. Oh, well, we figured out that it's not material. Like, no, that's not exactly. And then you get this hyper reduction on the other. And then we mean yep. organize the complex adaptive systems in between for coherence. And if we do that, we can actually. And that's where the interesting <laughs> stuff is right now. Essentially, all the interesting questions that humanity confronts are uh, interdisciplinary, transdisciplinary, non-disciplinary, complex phenomena. And more and more of the best thinkers are moving into that space, which is, again, one of the reasons why we should be at least cautiously optimistic about our future. Mm. Actually, there's one more question I have as we begin to look up a. Uh, you know, you have your. I love your podcast. Where you said, um, if I ask you, sort of like, hey, what have been some super exciting podcasts? Uh, any come to mind in relationship to as you use the podcast capacity, look out at the horizon of, of folks that you would want our listeners to go check out. Uh, let's see. Um, 
That's an interesting question. Uh, let me pull up my podcast and see uh, what I have done recently. Uh, there was an interesting one on the evolution of technology. I think it was Brian Arthur. Um, oh yeah, that that was, yeah that, that's a great one. Um, uh, yeah, Brian Arthur is uh, both a good friend and an amazingly good thinker uh, on the real nature of. I, from a Utah perspective, I was uh, particularly interested in that because as people know, so you talk with the tree of knowledge, it's a mapping the na natural evolution of behavioral complexity and really taps out at sort of our technology. You have to bridge from our evolutionary behavior into technology. So I would certainly orient people to that evolution uh, of technology because it's that bridge from our justification systems and capital C culture narrator into technology that also is the interface that gives rise to society. Yep. Uh, yeah, so that's uh, some of the ones. Uh, oh, here's here's a, a don't miss if you are interested in these kinds of questions. Uh, my recent episode with Robin Dunbar. Oh, you had Robin Dunbar on, huh? I missed that. Yeah. Okay. Oh, it yeah, was, well, that. I think it was one of the great classics. Uh, oh, beautiful. Uh, and then the one I published uh, this morning uh, with Heather Haying and uh, talking about her book with her husband Brett Weinstein called "A Hunter Gatherer's Guide to the 21st Century." Beautiful. Extraordinarily interesting. Uh, yeah, one of these days I'm going to tell Brett about the justification systems theory so he can so he can upgrade his narrative about how our evolution shifts into our religious belief systems. <laughs> yep, yep. Uh, if you're interested in uh, sort of my background in uh, uh, evolutionary computing and, and where it touches uh, artificial intelligence, uh, wonderful episode with Ken Stanley, episode 137 on neuroevolution. That's the applying... Oh of uh, uh, evolutionary theory to the evolution of neural nets. Hmm. It's not like Gerald uh, Edelman's stuff. I mean, he neural Darwinism was uh, his, uh, uh, anyway, I wonder if it has a descendant in Gerald Edelman's neural Darwinism. Ow, ow. <laughs> my pod, when I go to my podcast page now, there's something wrong with it. And it plays like all the podcasts. I'm ah, thinking. okay. You're hitting click, and it's uh, yeah, it's it's pre-clicking right. them all for me. Uh, let's see. What's it? Let me go with a couple other good ones. Oh, this is a amateur scientist who's done amazingly interesting work. He's been working on it for 20 years. Finally published a book on it. Uh, I read the book. I was impressed. I reached out to him. Dennis Waters on behavior yeah. and culture in one dimension. Ah, makes, I, yes, yeah. I, I I read. I listened to that one. I really enjoy that. That's a um, he talks about basically the input-output functioning processes, right, in relationship to kind of creating a particular kind of. Oh, I can't remember exactly how he identified the fundamental. Yeah, shift. essentially, the yeah the fundamentals is that somewhere along, uh, and he points out to at least two places uh, that are the most significant. Uh, evolution found a very interesting trick, which was to encode uh, complex machinery into one dimension. Yep. And then to co-evolve the machinery to turn it into three dimensions. Yep. And, and the first example he gives is the DNA show, right? Yep. A fair amount into RNA to DNA and all that. Uh, but really, it's the DNA, RNA, proteomics cluster that co-evolved. And mm -hmm. the information is actually stored in one dimension on the DNA. But yep. the ribosomes and all the rest of the machinery is a mechanism by which you turn that information in one dimension into another cell in three dimensions. Right. 
And, and I was, think as you rightfully pointed out, actually four, if we then put that in time motion. Correct. And I added, said, let's add four because yeah. life is inherently dynamic. And he agreed. Exactly. And, and then his other one was uh, language, which is yep. a, a single dimension. I, and he he makes a very interesting argument that it's written language even more than oral language. And uh, you know, Socrates would agree with him for both better and worse. I remember <laughs> Socrates hated writing famously. He did right? indeed. He thought it was the you know the ruination of humanity. Right. Uh, but Dennis makes some very cogent arguments on how writing is fundamentally different than speaking, yeah, and that writing is clearly very linear. And we can take, let's say, for instance, a recipe and turn it into an apple pie. And there's an example yeah. of uh, one dimension being converted through machinery, in this case, a human who knows how to cook, into something in four dimensions, an apple pie, which we then eat for dinner tonight, right? Amen. Uh, and so that, that, that is a very uh, non-trivial idea. And this is a really good book uh, Great. from a guy who's <laughs> not known at all. Uh, so that, that's a, another really interesting one I'd like to call out. So uh, those, those are some of my favorites from the last uh, few Beautiful. months of, of the Jim Rutt show. And folks can immediately tie that insight, basically an information processing, storage, computational aspect relative to the physical, mechanical world aspect to, you know, what the TOK says, yep, genetics, neural networks and language is an information processing communication network system imputed upon real chemical, physical, behavioral systems. And it is that those things that do network together to afford complex adaptive behavior at various uh, levels of dimensions of organization. So sweet. Yeah, I love the good. fact that all these things that we're all working on uh, have some real relationship to each other. And then we can build a coherent pluralism as we plug in, you know, with if we all cultivate that particular kind of mindset and then network ourselves together, we can build, build a tapestry of understanding from a multitude of different perspectives, but not leaves coherence. That's what I feel like we're on the cusp of. Well, well said. <laughs> well, um, we're getting near the end here. Is there anything that hey, we didn't cover or any future thoughts that you want to uh, afford us to, to leave us with as we begin to wrap up this conversation? Well, let me give a plug for one of my little side projects. Okay. Uh, I just published a mobile game uh -huh. called Network Wars. Uh, I heard uh, Jordan Hall told me about this. Yeah. So actually, okay. Yeah. I'm, I'm actually right. Yeah. Tell he, me. Talk. Yeah. He's become utterly obsessed with it. He claims he spent. 2,000 hours playing. Which I think oh, Jesus. Right. He, was, he was one of my first testers. So I said okay. he and I are just very close collaborators. Sure. And it's, it's an exceedingly simple game. It's, mm -hmm. it's on the currently on the Apple App Store, uh, okay. Network Wars, two words. Uh, it's a, a game that I specifically designed to be as simple as possible. Literally mm -hmm. takes 10 seconds to learn. Okay. But it takes weeks, months to master. It's like Othello. <laughs> exactly, right? And in fact, I, I my tagline on it is deceptively simple, but mm. uh, very deep, right? Okay. And uh, 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 you can feel, feel yourself uh, extracting patterns. In fact, I originally designed it as a science project mm -hmm. uh, to explore the idea of heuristic induction. Okay. Uh, which I'm going to talk to John Verbeke. I'm going to compare and contrast his idea of relevance uh, realization with heuristic induction. I've come to the view that uh, the two are related but aren't quite the same thing. Mm, uh, and the, the idea is that you're confronted with a noisy environment, and Network Wars is noisy. There's a fair amount of stochasticity in it. Okay. Uh, a game takes like five minutes, and every game is different. Each game mm. is essentially a different puzzle, but exactly the same mechanics apply. And, and some tactics and strategies work on some games and some work on others. Okay. And so you develop heuristics and meta-heuristics to let you get better and better and better at playing the game. 
uh, and uh, and I argue that this is a good exercise for your mind uh, to, uh, to 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 gradually extract from the noisy environment at least fifty. I've written down fifty uh, heuristics that I've discovered so far, and okay. I'm sure there's more. Uh-huh. And uh, so uh, you know, I encourage people who want to see a truly elegant game, if I do say so myself. Uh, that has a gigantic strategic space uh, to explore that you will not master anytime soon. Uh, Network Wars at the Apple App Store. And uh, just a final plug, one of the things I hate about the current state of mobile games is you see a lot of so-called free ones that are Uh full of ads and come-ons and time Uh limits and Uh in-game purchases. Uh Network Wars had none of that shit. No ads, no promos, no come-ons. 99 cents, you buy it once, play it forever. It's Love a hell it. of a deal. Hey, that is a hell of a deal. Wow, that's really, and perfect. I mean, in relationship both to how we can, uh, you know, cultivate our particular individual structures, see patterns, network together. How are we going to network our game B system relative to game A? I love that uh, analogy and affords us a capacity to kind of build a bridge across a wide variety of different things. Your life has been a hell of an interesting set of networks, I will say, Jim. Uh, You know, it's been a fascinating uh, journey. I deeply appreciate you walking us through that and giving all sorts of different uh, aspects and facets and a hell of a lot of shit to come. Uh, It's really been beautiful. Yeah, appreciate the opportunity. Come on, chat with you. you you've got yourself uh, kind of in the middle of this thing as well. So I got sucked in. You know, I'm just a humble psychologist over here going, I got shoved something. It's like, all of a sudden, fuck that. I'm actually in this crowd. Your tree of knowledge that stuff is a serious contribution, I think, to help us all make sense of this. So, uh, mm. you know, thank you for your work as well. I think, you know, we're all working together in co-creating the future. Hey, man, coherent pluralism. Let's do it together. Love it. Oh. Game B, here we come. All righty, Karen. Great. Thank you so much. All right. Been fun.